0: Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport and deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class athletes to help us create growth and optimise business and life. I'm Noel Allnut. Today on the show, we have world-class cricketer Simon Katic, who talks about hard work, passion and determination as key to overcoming challenges, turning setbacks into triumphs and staying at the top of the game. Building
1: Resilience
0: podcast. Hello Simon Katic, welcome to the Building Resilience podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm excited to have you here today, somebody I've followed um, throughout their cricketing career and somebody I've seen play live many times, 56 caps for Australia and travelled around the world playing cricket at the highest level. What I'd love to hear to begin with is how did you get there? What did your journey look like?
1: Well, I guess like most kids growing up in Australia, um, growing up in the in the sort of 70s and 80s, you know, we had space. I grew up on a property which was sort of semi-rural, half an hour outside of Perth in the Swan Valley and um, had a big front yard and, and big paddocks to roam around in because mum and dad had uh, 12 acres of property that um, my dad's parents had migrated to from Yugoslavia, I think, in the late 20s. So there was plenty of space. Um, I grew up watching cricket on TV. Um, I actually idolised the West Indian teams of that era. So um, I idolised Sir Viv Richards. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to meet him on my journeys through the world um, when I saw him in the Caribbean years ago. But, yeah, look, I think it was just a typical Aussie upbringing in terms of you watch the cricket on TV, then you go outside and try and emulate your heroes. And, um, you know, I guess from as young as I think maybe four or five, whenever someone asked me what I wanted to do, um, my family said that, you know, I told people that I wanted to play cricket for Australia. So you sort of never believe that it's actually going to eventuate. And then it, it actually did. So, um that's sort of the journey. Obviously, there's, there's more things to it. But, yeah, in a nutshell, uh, it was just like most kids. You grow up playing it in the front yard or backyard and um, just wanting to emulate your heroes. And, and I took that passion from there.
0: That's awesome. So you've lived your dream, essentially, of uh, seeing that you, you've gone ahead and done what you said you were going to do. And you, it's, it's all happened. And it's happened on the global stage. Congratulations. Thank you. Could you describe to me the mentality of a young Simon cottage going from the beginning of playing in that backyard into becoming a world-class cricketer?
1: Well, I think probably the the biggest thing or characteristic that stood out for me when I I think back now and at the time you don't realise it because you, you're still so inexperienced and, and naive, but now that I've probably looked back and reflected on my career, I think you know probably the the greatest characteristic I had was one of determination and. I think that goes across all industries, but, you know, particularly in cricket and particularly as a, a top-order batsman um, where I spent most of my first-class career and then a fair bit of my test career opening the batting at the end of my career for Australia, um, you know, that probably stood out. You've got to have that. And, and I think, you know, there was a story when I was, I was studying at uni after I'd um, finished school and I think I was in probably, I was just after my first or second season for WA and I was only about 19 years of age, and um, I had an end-of-season review meeting with our coach at the time, Daryl Foster, and, and he asked me what I was up to, and I told him I was you know, doing a commerce degree at uni, and, and he basically said to me, said, oh, don't give that up, and I took that as being he didn't think I was very good at cricket and that I wasn't going to have a professional career, and and I think in a way, I don't know, I don't think, it might not have been meant like that, but I took it as being you know, I hadn't had that good a season in club cricket and, and I hadn't played for WA and, and, and maybe I sort of from that perspective that he was saying, oh, you're not going to make it. And I look back now and think, oh, maybe that spurred me on because I had a point to prove. But, um, you know, I think that was something that stood out for me throughout my whole career is that level of determination. I think the other thing, you know, from a young age playing underage cricket, I was always very, very competitive. I uh, loved winning like a lot of kids and, um, and then you've also got to deal with losing. And, and I think as part of your journey, dealing with, you know, the good and the bad of cricket, uh, particularly from a batting perspective and not just your own performance but the team's performance, um, that's something that stood out for me that, you know, I love the competitive nature. I love the contest. That was one of my big strengths. I might not have been the most gifted player um, compared to other players, particularly in junior cricket. I think there was, you know, a lot of other young players um, when I played underage cricket for WA that, you know, got picked for Australian under-19s and I never played Australian under-19s, but, um, you know, I was highly competitive and and didn't, didn't let that worry me. I just thought that, you know, if I keep doing what I'm doing, hopefully I'll be good enough one day to, to end up playing for Australia. So that competitive nature was there and then I pr- probably the biggest thing was... Um, you know, being able to deal with setbacks and whether that was in underage cricket or then when I started to play professionally, I think um, the amount of setbacks that, you know, players have, and I was no different to any other player that we all have a number of setbacks. Um, But for me, probably the big one that defined my journey was, was in 2007 and I got told by um, the chairman of selectors at the time I think was Andrew Hilditch and he, and he rang me I was actually in the UK playing for Derbyshire and I'd been asked to come over as a last minute replacement I think for James Hopes who got injured in, in probably March that season and within a few weeks in eight, early April I was in Derbyshire getting ready to captain Derbyshire for the county season and I got a missed uh, message from Andrew Hilditch overnight saying that I'd been cut from the CA contract list and I was pretty much told that they were, I was never going to get picked for Australia again. So when I heard that message, uh, I was obviously disappointed, but I also realised that, you know, potentially that could be it for me and my dream was over. And I didn't feel like, you know, at 31 years of age at the time, I didn't feel like I was ready for that. And the irony was I think the very next day I had a game for Derbyshire down at Somerset at Taunton and, you um, obviously had a point to prove because I went out and scored I think 220 and smacked them everywhere. So I I think it probably just goes to show that even though um, you can get that news, you can still turn things around. And I, at the time I didn't consciously make a decision to to change anything with my game or anything like that. But I, I think what I did do was I probably consciously changed my mindset to make sure that wherever I was playing my cricket, whether it was at Derbyshire, whether it was for Randwick Peterson when I played club cricket for in Sydney or whether it was captaining New South Wales that next season, um, I sort of thought, right, I'm 31. I don't know how much longer I'm going to play for. So if that's the case, I'm just going to go out there and enjoy my cricket like I did when I was a kid, try and make as many runs as I can, try and help the team win as many games as we can and just try and really enjoy the rest of my career, whatever it looks like. And out of that came something really good for me personally because I, it probably freed me up. I went out and played really well for Derbyshire, had a great season, came home for New South Wales, captained New South Wales to the Shield. And then within 12 months, I was back in the test team after being told that my career for Australia was over. So I guess that change in mindset uh, made a huge difference. And it's, it's hard at the time because I think when you're in your professional career, you can want something really badly, um, but you can then probably want it too much and, and it ends up affecting your performance and, and how you go about things. And I don't think it, it affected me badly throughout my career that I wanted playing for Australia too much and it made me too uptight. I don't think that was the case, but with this experience, maybe it was because I think I, I definitely you know relaxed and enjoyed myself and played the game for the love of it. Um, during that sort of next 12 months after I'd been told those those sort of fateful words because in a way, whilst it could have been the end of my career, it ended up being the start of what was um, the rest of my career and probably the best part of my career from 31 to the end when I was about 39. So um, it's amazing what can happen when you, you have that change
0: in mindset. What a fantastic story. And just hearing there how you chose resilience, how you chose hard work and determination, but it's great to hear as well that passion for just enjoying what you do. It seems a really common theme that professional sports people, they have that mindset of going out in every day and going, you know what, this might be my last game of cricket, this might be my last game of rugby league, last game of rugby union, I want to make sure that I turn around and go, today was a proud day and I I left all that, that I could on the field. Did you have any rituals in play in order to to get you in that mindset? And, and over your career, did any of those rituals or, or habits change or evolve?
1: Uh, look, in terms of rituals, I, I think there's no doubt that um, I certainly had a process mentally, particularly when it came to playing the longer format of the game, whether it was first class cricket or test cricket. And and this evolved over a long period of time. I certainly didn't get it until probably, you know, my late twenties. And once you start to get that, you know, routine in place and you get consistency in your performance, you feel like you want to do it game after game rather than chopping and changing, which sometimes happens with young players because you're still trying to figure out what works best and you tinker with things. But, what I've probably stuck to, particularly in that last phase of my career from sort of 2008 to 2010 in the test team was that I I probably started the process mentally three or four days before the test started when we came to preparing for, for training. And basically, I just tried to make training as hard as I possibly could and, and potentially even harder than the game. So as an opening batsman, because we have to face the new ball, I, I just made sure that I always face new balls in the nets. A lot of guys sometimes don't like that because it, it can test them so much that they, they lose that little bit of confidence if they're not hitting the ball as well in the nets that then translates into the game. But I was of the opinion that I wanted to, to have that toughness to training because I was going to have to face that in the game. And so I did that. I obviously went through all the footage with the coaches and, and tried to study the opposition tactics by having those conversations either with the captain or coaches or fellow batsmen. Uh, or my fellow opening partner, um, which I felt was a, you know, a big thing as a, as an opener. Something that I learned was that it was about the partnership rather than the individual at times. And and I think when you have that focus on the team and the partnership, it's amazing what happens to you individually. And I know I certainly had that initially with Matty Hayden, and then eventually with Phil Hughes, and then eventually with Shane Watson, and um, and even with Phil Jake's for a few tests in the West Indies. So there was. Sort of four opening partners there where we talked about, you know, the opening partnership being really important to us as our role in the team and that, you know, we, we focused on the runs that we were making together rather than probably what we were doing individually. So having that helped. I think the other part of the preparation which helped was having a, a really strong routine with eating and sleeping um, because test cricket is tough physically and mentally and, and I, I made sure that, with that three or four-day routine, whilst training would be tough for the first couple of days, I would then taper off, particularly the day before a game, um, because I I knew physically I had to be right to get through those five days, either batting for long periods of time or being in the field for long periods of time, particularly in places like India or in Australia where it gets red hot. So that was something that I I really was mindful of and, and tried to make sure that you know, the day before a test, unless I felt like I really needed to hit balls or take some catches or whatever, it would be short and sharp, um, you know, if there was – I had to do a little bit, but otherwise it was sometimes nothing at all so that I could be really fresh physically for the test. And I guess the the thing about all of this is that – I have to say this to young players all the time – is that you can do all this stuff, but none of it guarantees the success – But you still do it because I think what I learned was that even though it doesn't guarantee success, what it does do is it allows you to relax mentally knowing that you've left no stone unturned in your preparation both physically and mentally to then go out there just to relax and enjoy the occasion. And and when when I say that, I'm talking about, you know, potentially opening on Boxing Day morning when there's 70,000 people there and you know you're going to be a bit uptight and apprehensive about what's happening and a little bit anxious about, you know, dealing with that. Um, and all you can do is, is prepare as best you can and then just try and relax and enjoy the occasion. And I guess that's probably the rituals that I stuck to and um, and, it, and it felt like it led to some really consistent performance,
0: particularly in my, the last three years of my test career. Yeah, that, that, having that consistency, having those habits is, uh, is so important to execute regularly at the highest level. It's something that we often talk about in, in businesses, you are what you do consistently. And a lot of the, the best people in, in the business world, in the sporting world, they just follow the right processes. They do the simple stuff well and, and very commonly that's, that's what it boils down to. You add that with the hard work and the determination then it's a, it's a winning combo. You've been captain of several teams and you come across as a, a natural leader. When you're out there talking to your team, when you're on the pitch, whether it's day three of a county match or whether it's on the field, day five of a test match um, and things people are starting to get fatigued, what's your narrative to, to the people around you to to lift them up and get the best out of them?
1: Yeah, look, we, we used to have a few sayings because the game of, particularly the long form of the game in uh, first class cricket or test cricket, it's tough. It's tough physically because... You know, you're having to back up day after day in generally a lot of hot conditions, particularly here at home or, you know, other parts of the world like the subcontinent. England's probably a little bit different. It's, it's a lot milder and cooler. Uh, and Sometimes it's dealing with the cold there, um, which is something I learned from my time at Durham. Um, but in terms of, yeah, talking to the players, I think, you know, as soon as you, you get a, a sense that the players are finding it tough and difficult... You just have to try and remind them about how lucky we are to be doing what we're doing because it's easy in the professional sporting world where you are looked after so well um, on and off the field, uh, particularly in the era that I played, um, you know, where the game did change financially and and professionally, is that the players can sometimes lose sight of that. And I think, you know, from my own um, journey, like when I did start in the early to mid-90s, you know, you could train 10 months of the year with WA and not get paid a cent, but we did it because we loved it, and we knew we we're doing it for the right reason. Whereas the game's changed now. There's a lot of money in the game of cricket, and and sometimes the younger players don't always appreciate that because they come straight in now to professional environments and they're getting paid very well straight away. But I guess in our era, we we learnt the value of the fact that we had been through that era of, of semi professionalism, and there wasn't a huge amount of money in the game. So you appreciated the opportunity and you were doing it for the right reason. And I think as a captain, I tried to instill that as much as possible to the younger players when things got tough, because, you know, there's a lot of people out there in society that do tougher jobs than us, that don't get paid anywhere near as much, um, but love what they do because that's how they survive and that's how they feed their family and, and, and get ahead in life. So whenever it did get tough, I tried to remind the players that, you know, there's plenty of other jobs out there that are tougher than ours and it, it's time to toughen up and, and get on with the job and, and dig in and, and do whatever we had to do to try and get back in the game or, or keep moving ahead in the game because we're well on top. So I think that's something that you have to draw on your experiences and, and draw on your background. You know, a lot of players come from different backgrounds. Some are, some are tougher than others. Some have had to work harder than others. So it's just a matter of understanding who you're dealing with um, from a playing perspective and understanding the different characters to try and get the best out of them. And I think from my perspective as a captain, you know, I, I learnt over time how to deal with people and different cultures. And um, it certainly wasn't something that just came straight away, but I always felt that as a captain I tried to have the mindset that I never forgot what it was like as a young player. So to try and have that, that level of empathy to, to know that, you know, when a young kid comes in the team – you try and have that level of understanding to give them a bit more leeway because they're just trying to find that belief in their own ability to to make it at this level. And and the last thing they need is to have, you know, a captain or a coach coming down on them really hard and aggressively and, and saying, you know, you're not up to it or you've got to do this better or do that because ultimately you're at that stage in your career where you're still a bit insecure and you're still trying to find that belief. So I was probably a little bit softer on the younger guys um, and probably a bit harder on the senior guys because I knew they knew what was expected, they'd been around, they'd proven themselves. So I tried to balance that out and um, didn't mean I was always soft on the younger guys because, you know, there's times where they do need a, a good talking to if their behaviour is not up to scratch or, or they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves or they're getting a little bit complacent um, because the thing about cricket is you can't look too far ahead of yourself because the game brings you back down to earth pretty quickly and, and that's something I learned as a player, but then also, you know, as a captain, you've got to keep everyone, um, you know, on their feet for for not getting too far ahead of themselves.
0: You've played alongside some of the the greats of world cricket and some of the naturally gifted Australians, the likes of Adam Gilchrist or Justin Langer or Mike Hussey. Um, Could you describe to me some of the characteristics of other great players that you've played with um, that you really wanted to emulate or that you've seen out there could, could really benefit the, the listeners?
1: Look, I, I'd say straight off the top of my head, all of those guys, and I was blessed to play in the era I did. I look back now and think how lucky I was. It was one of the greatest eras of Australian cricket, and we've had a number of them, but um, that era was phenomenal. And, you know, the list of players, I mean, you mentioned some greats there, but there's probably another dozen. You know, you go to the Wars, McGrath, Warren, Uh, Lee, Gillespie, um, Hayden, Langer, Martin. I mean, it just goes on and on. And I've probably missed a few guys there as well. It's just Andrew Simons, a phenomenal um, amount of talent. But the one thing that stood out to me throughout that era was the fact that the work ethic of all those players was outstanding. Um, You know, yes, there's going to be times where some guys backed off and didn't train as hard. But ultimately, most of the guys there were unbelievable trainers. Um, and I remember, I think Ricky Ponning used to have a saying that you don't get better at something by doing less of it. And that was something that a lot of the guys, you know, certainly followed from. Um, and some of them were unbelievable trainers. I mean, Justin Langer was was probably the, the greatest trainer I have ever saw. Um, you know, Mike Hussey probably wasn't far behind him and Brad Hogg wasn't far behind. If not, he was probably on a par with with Justin Langer, someone that got better and better just from sheer hard work. Um, And, and now recently I've been fortunate to have worked closely with Virat Kohli in the IPL and he's taken it to a different level, um, both, you know, with his physical training, but also his technical training with his cricket and his batting. But, you know, that era of Australian players, to me, the work ethic stood out. And as I mentioned before, it was highly, highly competitive. So, if you went back to state cricket and all those guys were playing and we played against each other, it was on and there was no holds barred. And I think that's what, you know, you always hear in, in business or sport that you are a product of your environment. And I think that was so true in Australian cricket at the time is that I don't think it's a coincidence that the era was as great as it was because we had such a strong domestic scene, we had such a strong club scene, and to get out of those to go from club cricket to state cricket was a big achievement because it was so cutthroat, so competitive. And, you know, there were so many good cricketers around that, that were good enough to play at the next level. And, you know, in that Australian era, only 11 were good enough. And, and that made it tough for a lot of players at state level to actually make it as international players. And and there was plenty of guys that you didn't even get to play for Australia that were fantastic cricketers. And, and that that was just the way it was.
0: Simon, you've had a really interesting progression since you retired from first class cricket? Roles at the head coach of the Royal Challengers in Bangalore, working around the IPL and then down moving into uh, operations at the Greater Western Sydney Giants AFL Club as well as roles around um, commentating and on the radio as also on on the Seven Network what would you say would be the traits that you've taken from your playing career into your business career?
1: I think uh... As I just mentioned, the work ethic, I think that's something that's always been ingrained in me from a young age, um, but also probably something that I I think I've been self-driven and and had that inner determination to to want to achieve things and to want to try and do as well as I possibly can. Um, And that's, I guess, being involved in team sport, a lot of it's been driven around wanting to do well, obviously you want to do well individually, but also to be part of winning teams. And, and that's what I've loved now about being involved in coaching is that, um, and, and whether it's an assistant role, whether it's a head coach role, to me it's the same in a way because you're there to try and help the team have success and you help to try and get the best out of the players. So I think the work ethic's been a big thing. Um, the other trait I think which is, is very relevant in professional sport and particularly in cricket is belief. Uh, belief in your own ability, because that's I think that's what it's all about. I mean, I look back and, and the guys that had it had successful careers. The guys that weren't quite as confident in their own ability or, or doubted themselves, um, some of them fell by the wayside, and, and that to me is a huge thing in sport, and I'm sure it's the same in the business world is, is backing yourself in and, and really believing in yourself. And then I think the other thing is um, being able to play a role um, to enable the team to have success and I think that is really relevant across sport and, and business because you can't do everything by yourself. I mean, I know that I was able to achieve what I did in cricket through um, hard work and ability and, and things like that, but I also know that I couldn't have done it without the support network I had around me and I'm, when I say support network, it's the same for everyone. It's your family, it's your friends, it's your teammates, it's your coaches, it's it's everyone around you that that helps get the best out of you and also provides that balance to your life. Because I think the thing I've learned with cricket is that it is such a, a consuming game mentally, particularly when you're a batsman, because you know that one mistake can be the end of your day and it is, you know, runs are the only currency to get picked in cricket, particularly as a batsman. And it's a fickle game with so many variables. So from that perspective, you can get caught up in, you know wanting to do so well and and you can lose sight of the balance to life there is more to life than cricket you know at the end of the day it's just a game there are far more serious things in the world we've obviously been through a pandemic in the last few years and that's been a great you know great leveler for everyone so um given the fact that cricket is just a sport yes it is it means everything to you when you're in it and you want to do well and you want your team to do well but ultimately it is just a game so i think it that support network is, is crucial to finding that balance. And I think that was one of the things that, um, certainly helped me throughout
0: my career. Thank you. Talking about taking sports seriously, let's pivot to the Northeast of England. Um, as somebody who followed uh, Durham County Cricket Club from their from the inception, and um, has has followed them all the way through, it was great to, to see you coming on the show today, so we could uh, we could reminisce a little bit about uh, your journey up to uh, up to Durham. It's a far cry from uh, the sunny fields of Perth to to head up there on a on a on a rainy uh, sunny afternoon. Can you talk me through that journey from uh, from Western Australia to uh, to Newcastle?
1: Uh, it was an amazing journey and I look back on it so fondly now because, I mean, I probably didn't realise at the time the enormity of the opportunity because when I first got contacted, I was I was turning, I was 24 at the time and I'd only played maybe a season or two for WA, so I did not played a lot of first-class cricket. And David Boone had been the overseas player there, I think, from 1997 to 1999 at the end of his career. And Boone is obviously a legend of Australian cricket and, and when I got approached to, to be the overseas player, um, I had no idea about Durham or anything about the northeast of England because I'd never been to England before. So I rang Booney up to get some advice and he said, look, I've got two pieces of advice for you. He said the first, he said, Durham is in the northeast of England. He said the first game of my last season in 1999, he said the whole ground at Chesterley Street at the Riverside was covered in snow. So he said, whatever you do, go out and buy some thermal underwear. So off I went and bought some thermal underwear. He said the second piece of advice, no word of a lie, he said, whatever you do, don't drink 58, 52 cans of piss on the flight over. <laughs> I, I, to this day, I made sure I, I was certainly not in that same capacity as Booney, but, um, you know, just to have that advice from him was was spot on. We had a laugh about it. Um, I mean, when I first got to Durham, I couldn't believe how cold it was. And, and I know the first month was a real eye-opener for me because, I was shivering at the crease. I had about five layers of clothing on just to stay warm. I I couldn't get past 10. The wicket was doing a bit, and I was thinking, God, what have I got myself in for here? But as the season played out, and I started to get accustomed to it, and I started to realize how I had to play the moving ball, it's totally different to playing at the whacker where it flies through. So, in the end, what was a tough season, um, you know, from a statistical point of view, I managed to get to a thousand runs and and sort of average over 40, but I was, in my mind, I wanted to do better than that. And it was a really good eye opener for me to realize that, you know, I had a long way to go and I'd just come off being sick, I think in 1999, the year before um, I had glandular fever. And then I had chickenpox on my first tour to Sri Lanka with Australia in, in August, 1999. And then I went to Durham in sort of April, 2000 and, um, I think I look back now and that, that season there was probably the making of me as a player because I had to work hard on my defence because the wicket did so much. Um, it, we had a tough, like a tough season from a team perspective because it was a young team. I was playing with a young Steve Harmison, a young Paul Collingwood. I was still only a kid myself. So, you know, it was, un, unknow- well, it was unheard of for counties to have young overseas players at that stage. You know, we were coming up against Shane Warne or Raul Dravid or Anil Kumble. All these guys have played a lot of test cricket, whereas I hadn't debuted and I was still a, a young player really with sort of maybe 30 games under my belt. So um, for me, it was a great experience. I love my time in the Northeast. The people up there are wonderful people, um, very friendly. They certainly made me feel at home. Um, and I learned from the Geordies that if you're going to have a drink with them, they are probably the hardest people to understand in the world when they have a few drinks. So um, I found that quite humorous trying to understand Steve Harmison after he had a few pints. But, um, you know, got taken to some Premier League games. Um, I got converted to be a Newcastle supporter because I was, I was probably more concerned about facing Steve Harmison in the Nets than I was Paul Collingwood. So he was trying to convert – Paul Collingwood was trying to convert me to be a Sunderland supporter and be a Black Cat um, but Steve Harmison got to meet, got me first,
0: and, and I'm a Newcastle supporter. Oh, I knew we'd get on just fine on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise that until now. Um, spe- speaking of things outside of, outside of cricket, um, I was having a chat with Shane Lee before uh, before we had this, and he was very complimentary. Um, and he said, uh, "You're a great captain and uh, a great listener and leader." But he also gave me two other interesting facts about Simon Cottage. You you love food and wine, which is great, but you also can't smell. Yeah, that's true. How has that affected your uh, your cricket career other than uh, it being a bit more sanitary in the dressing room?
1: Well, it made my cricket career a lot more enjoyable having to share it with all those smelly guys for 20 years. So um, from what I can gather, you know, the the dressing room can be an unpleasant place at times with – you know, smelly gear and, and some of the pranks that guys play on each other. And um, yeah, from that point of view, yeah, I just, from as far back as I remember when I was a kid, I couldn't smell anything, whether it was food or flowers or or anything. So um, yeah, I just got, I dealt with it. And I think people probably felt that, you know, could I get the same taste from food? But I, I'm pretty sure that I get the same taste in terms of how I describe things um, when I eat food, but Yeah, um, that's just unfortunately how things are and I've never really looked into getting it changed. So... um I think if you're losing any of the senses, that's probably the
0: one to to go. Simon, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. And and I want to say thank you very much for for taking the time to to talk about your journey and your skills and expertise and and how you've built resilience um, in the way you live your life and and how that's been emulated on the cricket pitch and and now into business and, and, and other walks of life. The final question I've got is the final question I ask everybody who joins the show. How would you define resilience?
1: Well, I know if you look at the definition, it's the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties um, and, and toughness gets mentioned. And, I mean, from my perspective, I would say, you know, in my own words, I'd probably say it's just the ability to deal with setbacks in life. And and that's probably how I've always looked at it um, rather than, I know resilience now is probably the buzzword um, across all sorts of areas of life, uh, and particularly now, given what's happened in the last couple of years with with COVID. So, um, yeah, that's probably how I deal with it, you know, in terms of thinking about if there's a setback, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, how are you going to get through it? And and you just, you move on and you try and deal with it as best you can. Because I think, as we all know, nothing, you know, always goes to plan in life. I mean, some things do, and there's plenty of things that don't. So, um, when you have those setbacks and things don't go to plan, you've got to come up with the, you know, plan B or whatever you want to call it to be able to deal with it um, you know emotionally and, and uh, mentally to be able to move on because if you keep dwelling on what's happened you never you know move on in life and, and never get better from something
0: that's excellent thanks very much for that um, outstanding kind of definition of what it means to you and uh, and I think that a lot of people can take that away um, and, and see how they can adapt that as they as they as they continue to grow one final thing. Quick Ashes prediction.
1: Australia, I'm not sure what the score will be um, because I know there's there's a lot of um, speculation around the weather pattern this summer and it's going to be a wet summer. I know particularly here in Sydney at the moment it's been very wet. So um, I think Australia should win. If I'm going to make a score line, I'm going to
0: say 3-1. Okay, I'll hold you to that time. Hopefully I'll have you on the podcast <laughs> again. And I hope you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Simon. I really appreciate it. My pleasure now. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks to our guest today, Simon Katic. I appreciate your time. Thank you to our sponsor, Securo. Securo, trust tomorrow. If you'd like to know more about me or Securo, you can head to securo.io. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Crew.